not complaining at all, but I'm operating under a strange little duress this morning. I, my ear is plugged up. And so I feel like I have my finger in my ear and I hear everything I'm saying in my head. And it's very disconcerting. I've been doing this all morning and chewing gum and everything else. I feel like I'm on an airplane coming down and my ears have plugged up. I have no idea what's going on. Okay, there's my complaint of the morning. That's it. I chalk it up to old guy complaints. That's what that is. Turn to the book of Mark, chapter 8. I know exactly where we ended. The reason I know exactly where we ended is because I purposefully stopped right where I stopped because I, I'm willing to admit I don't think I still had a handle on what we're about to read. So ever since I was a young Lutheran boy and first read this passage out of Mark, it has always caused me a certain amount of consternation. Let me explain why, and let's see if you don't feel the same way. In this next passage, Jesus is going to heal a blind man, but not completely. He, the perfect sovereign healer, he, the speaking agency through which all things were created, he, the one that was there in the formation of the first man from the dust, he who has absolute authority and control over all nature and heaven, hell, and earth, he heals a blind man and says to him, what do you see? And the man says, I see men like trees. And then Jesus takes a second shot at it. And then the man can see perfectly. Why didn't he make the man see perfectly to begin with? Why did it take him two steps in order for this man to be able to see perfectly? That has plagued me my whole life. Why would he do that? Genuinely, last night, while I was once again not sleeping because I was up against my old nemesis Saturday night, and while I was not sleeping, I was just pondering and thinking and going through it. And suddenly, the most logical thing came to my mind. Oh, context. And when I looked at it again in context, suddenly it started to make a tremendous amount of sense to me. So let me see if I can explain it to you in a way that you would say, yeah, I think that's what it's about. Let's start with the premise, the assumption, that Jesus actually is a perfect healer. Jesus actually is sovereign Lord, and he actually can do anything he wants. In other words, if he wanted to heal this man, if he wanted to give him perfect sight instantly, he could have. But he didn't. So there was a purpose for it. What was the purpose? Well, all the way through what we've been reading in the book of Mark so far, he's been teaching his apostles. He's been showing them things. And they just don't quite get it. For instance, last week, we looked at him feeding the 4,000. When he fed the 5,000, 
Mark took the time to say, and the disciples' hearts were hardened so that they didn't understand it. When he fed the 4,000, we read back in verse 17, Jesus says, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Okay, that's what leads right up to Mark including this story. The very next thing you read is about this blind man. And then what happens immediately after it? Well, immediately after it is Jesus asking his apostles, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say this, some say that. And then it's Peter who's going to say, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And at that point, Mark's going to tell us that Jesus speaks plainly to them. No parables, no riddles, nothing. He plainly tells them that he's going to die. And Peter rebukes him. Wait, what? Wait, Peter, who just said, you, you are the very son of the living God. You are the Christ. So he gets that. He understands that. He sees that. But then he hears Jesus very plainly say, I'm going to go and die, which Jesus is going to say several times in the remnant of the book of Mark here as we continue on. He's going to keep telling them this is going to happen, but they don't get it. Okay, so what's Peter really, really demonstrating at that moment? He's demonstrating that he kind of sees you are the son of the living God. He, he partially sees. He's not blind. He can kind of see, but he can't see it perfectly yet. He can't get it quite right yet. And I think that's why John took the time to tell us about Jesus saying, do you not see? Do you not understand? Because there's this interesting little thing in the Greek. When Jesus asks the man, what do you see? What can you perceive of? He says, I see in the Greek, there's a definite article there. I see the men, like trees. Well, first what we're going to read is that Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the village. But when he came across this blind man, when he came into Bethsaida, they brought a blind man to him and entreated him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. Okay, so there weren't a bunch of people. So what men did he see? These are the kind of questions I ask myself when I read the text. He said, I, I see the men like trees. What men? His apostles, clearly. Because everywhere Jesus goes, the apostles go. He takes the blind man out of the village. They go along. He didn't ask the man, what do you see for his sake? He asked the man, what do you see for their sake? So they'd hear it. 
They're there. They understand it. What do you see? Well, I'm not blind anymore, but I don't quite see everything yet. Then Jesus looks on him intently and goes ahead and heals his eyes completely so that he can see. And the very next thing we read is that Peter can kind of see, but he can't really see. You getting the example? Suddenly you look at it in context and it all just kind of clears up because why would Jesus do this purposefully if he wasn't teaching something? If he wasn't demonstrating something? And who was he teaching? Who was he demonstrating it to? Well, his apostles, the very people he's teaching all the way along. So I think he's using this man as an object lesson. Not only that he is the source of vision, but that they themselves don't quite yet see. You're not blind, but you don't see yet. And then Peter's going to demonstrate that exact thing. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. He's going to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus is going to call him Satan to his face. Well, a minute ago, this was the very one who said you're the son of the living God. And there's an interesting little element between Matthew's telling of this and Mark's telling of this that gives you some idea, since we know that Peter is the inspiration for Mark's writing, it gives you some idea of the humility that Peter learned before he actually relayed the story. So, all right, that's all introduction. Does my introduction make sense? Yes. Because I couldn't seem to make sense of it any other way. But if it's teaching a lesson about Christ being the source of even partial sight, and that only he can improve your partial sight to fuller understanding... Well, then this story makes complete sense to me. So they came to Bethsaida. This is verse 22 of chapter 8. And they brought a blind man to him and entreated him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, why did Jesus spit on his eyes? I find that kind of an interesting element. And why did he then put his hands on his eyes? Well, first you have to remember that the man is blind. He can't see what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus gives him almost like a contact point. His saliva, his hands, I'm working on your eyes right now. Something is happening. And because Jesus is the creator who could create human beings out of the dust of the earth, he can also create brand new eyes out of his own spittle. Through his own spit and through his own hands, he gives him sight. And he asks him, do you see anything? Again, I don't think he was asking the man for the man's sake. I think he was asking that question for the sake of the disciples who were standing there. And he looked up and said, I see men, as I mentioned, it's I see the men, but I see them like trees walking about. So I'm not blind anymore, but I don't see yet. 
I have partial sight, but I'm not blind. So that's good. I'm not blind, but I can't see perfectly yet. Then again, verse 25, Jesus laid his hands upon his eyes and looked intently and was restored. So Jesus put his hands on his eyes. The man then focused. He looked intently, and at that point, he was restored and he could see. So again, Jesus seems to be indicating, okay, you've got partial sight. Now look closer. Look more intently. Really focus on what's coming toward you. Because he's about to tell them what they have a really hard time accepting. So first he gives them the example. Look closer. Focus on what you're hearing. I've caused you to no longer be blind. And I've caused you to see. Now look closer. So that's what the man did. He looked intently and he was restored. And he began to see everything clearly. And so Jesus sent him to his home saying, do not even go into the village. So he had come to the village there by Bethsaida for the specific purpose of getting to Jesus. Jesus says, don't even go into the village. Which you would think that would be your first instinct, is to go into the village of the people who saw you blind and go in and say, look, I can see. He did it. Jesus just healed me and said, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Just go home. Just be grateful you can see, but don't go into the village. Why? Because he's continuing to take control of the situation around him because he knows that he has a particular time when he's going to hang on the cross, and therefore he has to make sure that that moment of hatred from the Jews that culminates in his crucifixion happens at the exact date that it's supposed to happen. So that takes us to verse 27. And Jesus went out along with his disciples. That's another demonstration that the disciples were with him when he was healing the blind man. And they went to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying, Who do people say that I am? Do you think he was asking for information? <laughs> no. He was seeing what they thought. Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them and said, but who do you say that I am? So that was the point of the first question. Who do men say that I am? Well, this, that, that. Yeah, okay, but what do you say? Who do you think I am? Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Okay, so keep your finger right there in the book of Mark and go back to the book of Matthew. Go to Matthew uh, 16, 13. By the way, this ear thing is making me insane right now. I appreciate all of you, after I said, this is making me insane, that none of you said anything. Because <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, that in your heads, all kinds of responses came up. 
Okay, so enough of that. You've had sufficient time. Is everybody in Matthew 16, 13? Because we're going to read about the exact same account, but Matthew is going to include information that Mark doesn't include, and I contend it's because Peter, who is telling Mark about his history with Jesus, Peter just leaves this out. And I think it's interesting that Peter leaves it out because it's actually complimentary to Peter. Peter could have included it when he was telling Mark. He could have said, yeah. And then Jesus said, man, you are so blessed, and I'm going to build the church on you, the rock. And you, man, you are Catholic as can be, and we are going to build a church together. Peter says none of that. Peter leaves all that out in Mark's account because I think he recognizes his own humility once Jesus says to him, get behind me. So, starting at verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, instead of being called Simon, I'm now going to give you the name Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So that whole section about Jesus saying to Peter, you are blessed because my father has given you this insight. Number one tells us something really, really important, which is that flesh and blood, even in observing Christ and his miracles and his authority, even then flesh and blood just can't recognize him, just can't comprehend who he is and what he's about. And so if anybody knows anything... Even Peter recognizing him as the son of God, if anybody knows anything, that has to be an act of God. God has to have enlightened you to that reality. It's not the evidence. It's not the physical evidence that proved it to you. The church that, that Tom and I came out, Tom, Tom and I came out, I forgot your name for a minute, Tom. <laughs> it's the ear. That guy, and I, it is, it's the ear, I'm telling you. The church that Tom and I came out of in Los Angeles not only believed that you had to rev up your own faith, but the way it was explained to us, see if this sounds familiar, and if it does, don't go screaming for the parking lot, but he used to say, you rev up your faith after you have looked at, this is what he called it, God's batting average. And once you can see for yourself that God is a gentleman who always keeps his word, 
then you can cast yourself on him because of the weight of the evidence. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Okay. That doesn't work here. Because Peter was not told, oh good, you figured out who I am. Now that you figured it out, cast yourself on me. That's not what was said. What was said was, oh, you know I'm the Christ. I'm the son of the living God. Flesh and blood didn't show that to you. In fact, even the evidence, the feeding the 5,000, the feeding the 4,000, the miracles I've done, calming the, the sea, even you walking on the water, that didn't prove it to you. The only reason you know it, because you are just naturally blind, you are naturally sinful, you are naturally depraved and fleshly, the only reason you comprehend the first thing about Christ and who he is, is because God showed it to you. And so, Peter then doesn't say anything about that when he tells Mark. Mark leaves that out completely. And I'm only guessing at the motivation, as I've said. I suppose that it's because Peter just couldn't bring himself to brag about himself. We've seen it a couple times now, where complimentary moments toward Peter, he just leaves out of the story. All right, so turn back to Mark. And in verse 30, we read the same thing that we read in Matthew. He warned them to tell no one about him. He warned them to tell no one that he was the Christ. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man himself must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again, and then Mark tells us, and he was stating the matter plainly. In other words, no parables, no riddles, nothing vague about it. I am, in fact, going to be killed. Then three days later, I am going to rise again. Doesn't it seem like logically then, when it actually occurred, when he actually was crucified, don't you think that three days later they would all be gathering at the tomb waiting for him to get up again? He said he was going to do it. He gave us all the evidence. We should be here waiting for him. And yet when he came out of the tomb, nobody. Mary came. There was that moment. But disciples, no. Peter, what did he do? Swore he didn't know Jesus three times, exactly the way Jesus said he was going to do. Why? To save his own skin. Okay, so even though Jesus has told them plainly what is going to happen, they still don't get it. Even though he has shown, demonstrated time and time again that he has absolute authority over everything including life and death and sickness and blindness and heaven, hell and earth and demons. Though he's demonstrated that time and time again, he says to them, I'm going to rise again. They don't believe it. When he gets crucified, they should have turned to each other and said, yep, just like he said. Because he's going to keep saying it. And yet they don't get it. I think that's what the whole blind man thing was about. Yeah, you're, you're not blind, but you still don't see. 
you still don't get it. Yes, sir. And it's not like they had to spend three days and three nights waiting at the tomb. He gave them a time on it. Yeah. So they could take two and a half days off. Yeah. And then show up at the appointed time. Yeah. And still they didn't do it. You know what's going to happen and when. And gee, what, what is this Sunday? Oh, it's the Feast of First Fruits. Gee, that would be fortunate if he rose today. But it, it all just fit the perfect timeline. But they didn't get it. And yet... Jesus is teaching them, God is teaching them, the Old Testament feasts are teaching them, everything is pointing at the reality of what's happening, they just don't see it. So much so that the next thing we read, verse 32, he was stating the matter plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Way to go, Peter. Wow, yeah. <laughs> uh, first off, wow, what hubris. I also think this falls under the category of genuinely familiarity breeds contempt because Jesus has demonstrated who he is, demonstrated his authority and power. Peter has already come to him on the water and then looked at the waves of the sea and started to sink and said, Lord, help me. And Jesus reached down, plucked him up, and pulled him back on top of the water. And they both walked back to the boat together. He knows you have all the authority. You have all the power. You control the wind. You control demons. And yet Peter rebukes him. I just find that the height of arrogance. But, verse 33, but turning around, and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Okay, what does that tell you? Number one, if you set your mind on the things of this world and the things of this earth, and you don't recognize that he has absolute authority over things like life and death, and you set your mind on things like saving your own life, which he's about to bring up, and you're mostly concerned about the things of this present age, all of which are going to burn, if that's where you set your mind, you're in league with Satan. You're not even in league with God about those things. And let's be honest, I can see it from Peter's perspective. Here you think you have found the Messiah, the King of Israel, here you believe that, that the Christ is going to establish the long-awaited kingdom. And you're going to be his right-hand man. You're going to be powerful in the kingdom. And then he tells you, oh, and I'm going to die. And you think, no, that can't be. No, you can't die. No, you have to set up the kingdom. You have to be our Messiah. You have to. Jesus points out to him that this is the way God planned it. This is the way it's supposed to happen. You can go back and look at the prophets and see that this is what is described. You go back and look at Isaiah 53. It's plain right there that the Messiah is going to die and the Messiah is going to live. Which is why the Jewish teachers and rabbis through the years have struggled so bad with that passage. Because they just couldn't figure out how one man could die and live. And so they postulated that there were two different messiahs. Messiah ben David, Messiah ben Joseph, one was going to die, the other was going to rule. No, they just couldn't figure out that it's one man 
One man is going to die and live again. And so he says, this is God's plan. You don't adhere to God's plan. You're not listening to what I'm saying. In other words, look closer. Concentrate. Listen to what I'm saying to you. I'm going to die and raise again in three days. And if you don't adhere to that thinking, that's the thinking of Satan. Turn to Luke 21. Let's see if that's exactly what I'm thinking of. Luke 22, that's what it is, 22:31. To me, this is one of the most frightening passages in all the Bible. Luke 22:31 says, "Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have been turned again, in other words, you only see partially, when you can see more clearly, strengthen your brethren. After the Holy Spirit has come, after you understand all this stuff, then go strengthen your brethren. But at the moment... Satan has come to me. That, that implies that there was actually a conversation that went on between Satan and Jesus where Satan said, now I know from the scripture that I get one of them. One of your 12, I definitely get. I think it's Peter. Because he's seen Peter make these mistakes time and time again, keep his sandal in his mouth, rebuking Jesus. Satan thinks you're the one. And Jesus comes to Peter and says, Satan has uh, talked to me, and uh, he'd like to have you. And the only reason that Peter is not overtaken by Satan so that he can sift him like wheat, the only reason that he doesn't get him is Jesus says, but I prayed for you. I did it. You know, Satan... How often have you heard through the years in the Christian church, how often have you heard Satan wants you, so resist him? You know, just do better, rev up your own power, have more faith, stir yourself up. No, the answer is Jesus has to protect you from Satan because if he doesn't do it, Satan will sift you like wheat because you don't have the power, the authority, or the time in the game that Satan has. He's more wise than you. He's more clever than you. He's more subtle than you. And he will confound and confuse you at every turn if it weren't for the fact that you have the surety, the security of somebody standing at the right hand of God pleading your cause for you, praying on your behalf, interceding for you, and then giving you his Holy Spirit to protect you and seal you for the day of your ultimate redemption. If you didn't have that, you're toast. And the world at large, toasty. So is it any surprise that the world, well, they're going right down the tubes. That's what I'm trying to say. And we see it, and we wish we could do something about it, and we're horrified by it, but Satan's having a field day out there. And we've just become so used to it. We've become so accustomed to it. 
that I don't even think we see it anymore. But he's out there having a field day. The point that I'm trying to make is you can't know the first thing about Jesus unless God tells you. Unless God, by his spirit, puts that knowledge in you. That awakens you and takes you from your natural blindness to sight. But it's not perfect sight. Because none of us have yet seen Jesus in his majesty and his glory. In fact, that's why the Bible says that one day our faith will be sight. I can't wait for that day. I can't wait till my eyes are finally really opened and I can see Jesus clearly. But between now and then, I'm going to keep looking intently. I'm going to keep looking as hard as I can to try to understand these things and comprehend who he is and what he has done for me. So not only do you need him for you to not be blind, not only do you need God's intervention and regeneration to understand the first thing about Jesus, but if it weren't for the fact that Jesus intercedes for you and prays for you, you don't know how to defend yourself against the wiles of Satan. It's all him. It's completely him. It's totally him. He does it all, and you are just the recipient of grace, 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 grace. Turning around, I'm back in Mark 8.33, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the multitude with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone comes to me, your life is going to get really good. If anybody comes to me, you're going to get a bigger house and a better car and your children are going to be good looking and you're never going to be sick and you're going to run faster and jump higher because you accepted me. That's the common teaching. Jesus says, if you want to come after me, deny yourself. Okay, that would be just the opposite of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. In fact, not just deny yourself, but pick up your cross. Okay, what is a cross? Especially in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, they knew what a cross was. A cross is a place of ignominious death, torture, pain. And he says, if you're going to follow me, you have to lay down your own life, your own interests. You have to deny yourself And pick up your cross because Christianity in the first century, and certainly much more so than it is today, so I don't think we can really comprehend it, but Christianity was indeed a death sentence. If you adhered to Christ and who he was, then you were going to be hated by the Jews, who, as we read in the book of Acts, were sending Paul out to bring people back to Jerusalem to stone and kill like they did Stephen. Or... You're saying Caesar isn't God. Jesus is God. Now you're an enemy of Rome. So the leading authorities are against you the moment you align yourself with Christ. Christianity was a death sentence. Today, Christianity is taught as being 
kind of a groovy accoutrement to your already groovy life. Everything's going good for you. Add Christianity, things get better. That's the way it's taught. But if you are really serious about this Christian thing, you're going to find that it does not make you popular. There's a phrase that I don't remember who originally said it, but I glommed onto it and really liked it. And the phrase was, you can be popular or you can be right, but you can't be both. If you're going to be right about Christ, if you're going to align yourself with Christ, if you're going to hang on to Christ, that is going to completely undermine your popularity here on this planet. But let's be honest, you don't need to be popular on this planet if God is for you. Amen. If God is for you, who cares who's against you? Because you're not going to live a whole lot longer. You're going to be gone in an instant. Uh, this will be great. This will be a lot of fun. Okay. <laughs> Marilyn, yes. I won't say your age. I don't care. <laughs> 81. I was going to say two. Okay. How fast did that go by? Just instant. So where'd my life go? I had plans. I had things to do. Where'd the life go? Oh, I was talking to Janine just the other evening, and I said, when I think about how fast the first 62 years went by, I can only imagine how quickly the remaining years are going to go by. Mm. It's, it just accelerates. It gets so fast. Okay, so with that perspective, what am I really interested in? What people think of me or what God thinks of me? Because I'm going to spend a whole lot longer in eternity than I ever spent here. So really, what do I care about? Well, that's essentially what Jesus is about to say. Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. There's one of those Christian paradoxes again. You go up by going down, you get by giving, and you save your life by losing it. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake shall save his life. So if you want eternal life, where are your priorities? Well, your priority should be the one who has eternal life in his hands. The very one who is the judge of the quick and the dead. That should be where you're interested that should be what holds your attention. That should be the thing that you look intently at. Because then Jesus says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What's that get you? Oh, man, I spent my whole life, became wonderfully successful, self-made man, and I died a billionaire. Okay, you take none of it with you. And how much of that are you actually going to use to exchange for your soul? When you stand before the judge of the universe, are you going to be able to buy him out? Are you going to be able to convince him based on how much you have? Because don't forget, in reality, you have nothing. But I was rich. But I worked hard. But I accomplished things. My friends really liked me. The world thought I was something. 
Yeah, well, now you're standing before the judge of the universe. What are you going to give in exchange for your soul? Nothing. You've got nothing you can give. You have nothing you can exchange. So then, again, this keeps hearkening back to the same question. What then is important to you? What are you going to look intently on? What are you going to concentrate on? What actually matters in this life? Verse 37, for what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man shall also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Okay, first off, Christ went all eschatological at that point. Eschatological. Christ went all, that's the ear thing again. Christ went all eschatological here and said, I'm coming back in the glory my Father gave me with my holy angels. And when I'm doing that, what are you going to do? What are you going to give in exchange when it's time for the final reckoning? I'm the one in control here. I have all the power. You live in a wicked, sinful, adulterous generation. I would say it's a wicked, sinful, and adulterous world that we live in. So what are we ashamed of? What are we ashamed of in this life? Are we ashamed of Christ? Are we ashamed to be thought of as nothing? What if we accomplish nothing for this world? What if at the end of our lives we die and are forgotten? What does that matter if Christ knows who you are? What does that matter if your name is in the Lamb's book of life? What does that matter if you're going to spend eternity in the glory of God? That's the exchange. You get to be really, really great and successful in this world, or you get to be known by God. Those are the options. Now, God may very well, because he knows you have need of these things, he may bless you. I consider myself a highly blessed man. I was in the driveway out here talking to Janine when we got here. And I was saying to her how very, very fortunate I am. How strangers I have never met actually give for my support. My bills get paid. I eat and have clothes on my back because people I've never met support us. How blessed am I? I have a really good deal. But I'm also 62 and in reasonably good health. And I also am in my right mind. And I also have a house and a car and great kids and a great wife. And I have a really, really good life. But that is not the result of my doing. I wake up some days and ask myself, how do I do this? How am I pulling this off? And I know it's not me doing it. I know that it's only the kindness, the goodness, the grace, and the blessings of God. And if he decides to take it all away, well, then it all goes away. Because what I care about most is that I'm leaving this planet, and I have to go stand before him. And the last thing I want him to say to me is, why were you ashamed of my son? Yeah, it makes you shudder, doesn't it? I am not ashamed to talk about Christ and who he is and what he has done. 
And he lays out the warning right here. If you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you. You don't want that. You don't want the Son of Man to get here, look at you and go, you're my enemy. Because, again, he has, let's see, what is it? All the power. And you have, let's see, what is that? None. So it's not going to go well for you. So, all right. Next week, we will pick up right there. And then we're going to see the Mount of Transfiguration because Jesus is not done demonstrating who he is. And he's going to show his authority over Moses and Elijah. He's going to demonstrate that yet again to his apostles. And then he's going to follow it up by telling them again, I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to raise. They still don't get it. So again, if you think that if you just had sufficient evidence, if you just saw a couple of good miracles, if you could have just lived 2,000 years ago and walked and talked with Jesus, maybe then you'd have better faith. No, you wouldn't. The only way you're going to have any confidence in him is if he puts that confidence in you. He's the author and finisher of faith. He's the one who makes sure that you are going to end up in your pre-appointed destination, your predestined outcome. And he's going to do it all for his own glory. So don't be getting, don't be getting thinking. Don't be getting thinking. That's the ear talking. So don't start thinking that you got it figured out. You are utterly, completely dependent on him. And if he is showing you, if he is enlightening you, if he is opening your eyes and opening your mind and your heart, then you are going to come to faith in him and you are going to cast yourself on him and he's going to get all the credit and all the glory eternally for having done that And there's not going to be any of you bragging about what you did. Because you didn't stir up your faith and you didn't figure it out. You didn't look at the evidence and the batting average and come to a conclusion that he's a gentleman so you can cast yourself on him. Your eternity is based in him. Now, are you ashamed of him? That's the question. You better all say, no. Otherwise, get out. So, (laughs) all right. It's a little short this morning. Looking at the clock, you you can all be grateful to the the weird ear thing that's making me crazy. Questions about that? Yes, sir. You'll have to speak up. Uh, Comment. You know, I read an article in a magazine back years ago about people getting restored sight that uh, people who are blind from death or maybe shortly after death, blind from birth, (laughs) and shortly after birth. That's like Erica seeing videos of herself before she was born. It's the same thing. We have some of those, too. Yeah. And uh, the the phenomenon that these doctors were struggling with is they can restore their eyes, but they they don't know what they're seeing. They don't recognize anything. And and it takes quite a long time of therapy they see with their ears, so they, it takes a lot of therapy. And in that article, it was it was just a throwaway verse about 
this reference in the Bible, of a, a throwaway reference of like, well, that's kind of reminiscent of this verse in the Bible. Yeah. That uh, Jesus didn't just heal the man's eyes, but he healed his mind. And uh, it's a bit of a testament to what that's like, that he really did heal a man. Because people would not have known, even modern medicine didn't realize that was an issue until they started figuring out how to restore people's sight. Exactly right. Or, or not even restore in some cases, create sight. Yeah. Yeah, if you give a man perfect sight and then you hold up an object, like a ball, yeah. he doesn't know that's a ball, he's never seen one. So just and because he can see it doesn't mean he recognizes it. He, does, he still doesn't know what it is. Still doesn't know what it is. <laughs> and yet, this guy, who had never seen a tree... Yeah, no, I, I thought right. Yeah. I see men like trees. So I agree with you. He restored not only his sight, but his, his mind. Well, first of all, I don't know that this man was blind since birth. Right. Unless it says in the Could be. But I had the same thought that Mark was just discussing. Jesus said, don't go into the village, go home. Well, Jesus led him out of the village. And the first thing I'm thinking is, did he have to close his eyes hmm. to find his way to his house? Yeah. Someday in heaven, I'm going to go, you're that guy. You're the blind guy? Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk. <laughs> I have questions. Yeah, the Bible doesn't fill in all the details of that stuff, or else it would be too big to carry. Anything else? Other questions? All right, no questions? Well then, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye! Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.